and turn to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. Now, I know we're in First and Second Samuel. We're going to continue to study that, but uh, we're going to do today's scripture reading from Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read uh, verses 32 and 34. It'll be on the screen behind me uh, as well. And this is going to set us up for our time in First and Second Samuel. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, remember that, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now go down to verse 39 of the same chapter. And all these... Though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Continue to read. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Hebrews 11 and 12, like I said, is going to set up where we're going to go in 2 Samuel. If you're new with us, we, this is what we do. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are uh, about to cross the finish line in studying 2 Samuel. And about to, I mean, like next week, we finish 2 Samuel, all right? And it has been, I think the first week of August 2022 was our first week in First and Second Samuel or something like that. At least we've been studying it nearly for, for, for a whole year. We've, we've been going through these, these two books. And, and Hebrews 11 and 12, I hope, set us up for interpreting these two chapters. And in many ways, the narrative of Second Samuel, meaning the story that we've been walking in uh, with David and, and with Absalom and some of these other, these other people in, in the book, ends today. The last four chapters, so it's 21, 22, 23, and 24, the last four chapters of 2 Samuel are, are not chronological. They're like an epilogue. They're, they're like a eulogy, if you will. So we're going to actually cover all of those next week uh, together. It's going to be great, so you, you don't want to miss it. So this week ends our narrative in 2 Samuel, and, and uh, to be honest, it ends in a fascinating way. And I'm not just saying that because I'm teaching it. I'm saying that because I want you to set you up with an anticipation to see if this book ends how you thought it would end. And so let's keep your Bible open to 2 Samuel 19. I'm going to wade through that. And this is going to be a picture in 2 Samuel 19 of David's kindness and a foreshadow of the coming capital K king, the kingdom. Um, and so in many ways, David is now, well, not in many ways, he is returning back to Jerusalem. If you weren't with us, here's what happened, brief, brief snippet. Absalom, David's son, revolted against his father, David, and David was forced to flee Jerusalem, the holy city, and so David fled out of Jerusalem, and, uh, and so a battle happened, and Absalom's uh, life was taken from him, and now David is put back on the throne, and he's making his way, because he's gone out of Jerusalem, he's now making his way back into Jerusalem, okay? And so the narrator stops 
down and, and kind of chronicles this journey back into Jerusalem. By the way, it's believed that the same road that he left Jerusalem, he's now entering back into Jerusalem on, and there are these people that he interacts with on his way back now into Jerusalem, okay? And so I, it, the, everything in the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every name, every moment, every sequence of what's going on here. And so I want to look at these people that David interacts with on his road back into Jerusalem as he's standing there at the Jordan. And so uh, verses 8 is where we'll, in, in 2 Samuel, verse 8 really begins this section of scripture and talks about David's return. And so he switches generals. Here in this, he, from Joab, used to be David's general, to Amasa. This will make sense in chapter 20. But he switches generals here uh, based upon Joab's reaction last week with uh, Absalom. In verse 14, and he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, this is talking about Absalom, so they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. All right, this is David going into Jerusalem. In verse 16, first meeting here. And Shammai, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down, to, hurried down to come down with men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. Pause right there. Do you remember this guy from a few weeks ago, Shammai or Shimei? His name could be pronounced either way. But this guy, Shammai, you remember as David left Jerusalem, this was the guy who was cursing David, who was hurling stones at him in, in chapter 16. And so much so that in chapter 16, it talked about the fatigue or weariness of this cursing upon David, that it, it, it just fatigued David. And it talked about how Shammai's cursing was about how Absalom was the new king and David was, you know, worthless and all of these things that just beat David down. And I'll explain a little bit more of the story. But now, guess what? David's returning back into Jerusalem as king to sit back on his throne, right? He's back. Shammai. But now, how is he coming back? He's coming back, not as someone hurling curses and stones, but someone who, look at it, who's falling on his face. Look at verse 18. And Shammai fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. Please, like, and, and by the way, the Bible here in this particular scene doesn't give us the sincerity of his repentance. It just lays it out there for what it is. It just says this is how he approached David after hurling curses and stones at him. Now he's falling at David's feet, knowing he's about to go back and be a king in Jerusalem over the nation of Israel. And he's going, I'm sorry. In fact, he, he says it in verse 20. He says, for your servant knows that I have sinned. I messed up. What I did in cursing you on your way out of Jerusalem, I know, I now know I was wrong. Again, to the depths he, know, he knows he was wrong, you can do a further study because Shammai is going to be dealt with actually under Solomon, David's son. And so you can look at this further. But in this scene, this is what we know. This is what we hear from Shammai. David has a choice. How is he going to respond to the one who cursed him? 
How's he going to respond to the one who created so much fatigue and weariness in him? For the last time he was cursing him, let him get off the hook. What about this time? Well, before we get to David's decision, and this is always the case, there's someone there who would like to help David with his decision. Abishai, verse 21, the name that's there also in chapter 16. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Do you remember the first time we saw Shammai and he's cursing? Guess who was there? Abishai. And what was he like? He's like, listen, David, we can do this quietly. I'll go over there. I'll take care of it. You know, I will silence the guy who's cursing you, right? And David said what? Back in chapter 16 to Abishai, he's like, no, you won't. Because he could be speaking the word of the Lord. And David goes, and in many ways, he's, he's speaking the truth about me. I have failed. I have messed up. Listen, the Lord is perfecting his power through David's weakness in all of these scenes. That's in fact what Hebrews 11 was talking about. In many ways, the idea of weakness is something or this idea of failure we all can relate with, can't we? Like we can relate with the the things we have problem relating to is what? Strength is power. We all understand weakness. And so what the Lord is doing here is he's using David's weakness to display his strength and his power, God's power. And so Abishai is like, all right, The first time, David didn't allow it, but maybe the second time. And so Abishai's there is like, David, now? David, can I, remember, this is the guy that cursed you. Remember, this is the guy who spoke against you. Remember, this is the guy who sided with Absalom. Now's it, right, David? Now's the time to execute justice. You see, what Abishai is misunderstanding is where vengeance lies, Abishai wants justice or vengeance to rest in whose hands? His, right? Comes down to that root of control that we all love, right? But what does Romans 12 tell us? Where does vengeance and justice ultimately lie? Not in your hands, not in my hands, not in Abishai's hands, but in who? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's right, just say it, right? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Justice belongs to the Lord alone. And so David, understanding this, right, after Abishai, but David said, so here's David has a choice. Verse 22, but David says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this king, this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, here it is, here's David's, here's David's decision. You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Mercy. From Shammai cursing David to David blessing Shammai with mercy. And again, we don't know the level at this point of Shammai's repentance or sincerity toward David, but David hears it. He understands it. And what's interesting is when verse 20, where Shammai says, I have sinned. That is the exact same phrase that David used in chapter 12 after Nathan, the prophet Nathan, confronts him about he and Bathsheba. What does David say? I have sinned. Can you imagine how that phrase from Shammai maybe rung in David's ear and in his heart when he heard a man falling on his face before him to go, I have sinned. And Abishai's like, let me finish him. David goes, who am I? 
to hold against this man the very thing that the Lord did not hold against me, right? Who am I to hold back mercy when I've been given all the mercy in the world by the God of the universe? May I be a picture, David is saying, of God's mercy to this man. You shall not die. Now I want us to think there just for a minute about our own lives. How we treat others who have sinned against us. This is talking about horizontal people who have been in the place of Shammai in our own lives, who've wounded us, who've spoken against us. In those moments, do you go, I'm going to hold on to this. This may come back around a little bit later. And then think about stones that I have to cast. I'm going to hold on to this one, and I'm going to cast a really big stone at you. Or do you follow the lead of the forgiveness and mercy of the Savior the king who has forgiven you. That you lead with mercy. That you lead with grace. That you lead with understanding. And that you lead with forgiveness. Now, listen, I'm not talking about reconciliation. That's something else. But I'm talking about how you treat others who have mistreated you. The heart. The way tr- David treats Shammai here is a beautiful picture of the gospel, that as we become before the Lord, the King of kings, and throw ourselves at his feet, he doesn't look at us and go, well, why don't you stand up and prove yourself? He goes, why don't you prove this out? He goes, my forgiveness is your forgiveness. I'm giving you grace. I'm giving you mercy. This is why this is such a picture of the king to come. But this isn't the last encounter David has in displaying this. The next one, verse 24 to 30. And Mephibosheth, I love Mephibosheth. If you've been with us, you know how much I just love this guy and this story. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard, not washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back into safety. Okay, now we get the picture of Mephibosheth. If you don't remember that story, this guy is Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson who was dropped when he was fleeing, and so he's crippled, Mephibosheth is crippled, and the last time we saw Mephibosheth, he was literally brought to David at David's request so that David could bless him, show kindness to him, Hesed, right? And, And he's carried to the king's table, and David says, everything, every day I'm king, everything I have is yours. Every day you're in the kingdom, you sit with me at my table. Like just this overwhelming kindness on Mephibosheth. But now we get the picture of Mephibosheth who was back in Jerusalem and he's become disheveled in many ways, right? Like his, 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 his legs weren't upkept, his hair and his beard wasn't trimmed. What does that tell us? Well, that tells us a couple things. First off, it tells us that, that, that Mephibosheth was neglected by Ziba, the one who was supposed to be caring for him. You remember Ziba when he came to David with these donkeys and he came with this very elaborate story about how Mephibosheth is really sided with Absalom in the revolt and he's on the other side. And David's like, okay, everything Mephibosheth has, Ziba, it's yours. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Those donkeys that were saddled had no intent for Mephibosheth to ever get on. Yeah, sure, he would have loved to follow David out of Jerusalem, except he can't walk. He can't ride unless he's placed on those donkeys. 
And those donkeys, I believe in a very devious way for Ziba, went without Mephibosheth intentionally. And so back in Jerusalem, Mephibosheth sees all this rolling out with Absalom there and David not there. And he just begins to mourn. And his physical posture, his physical look actually tells us something about his internal posture longing for the king to come back. And so imagine this scene. David is coming back. The one who brought him to the table, the one he was carried to the table for, is now coming back into Jerusalem. And he tells the story. He tells what, what happened. And David goes, okay, okay, I've heard it. I've heard it. This inheritance that I gave back, half of it goes to you, Mephibosheth, half of it goes to Ziba. You say, why, why is that fair? Well, David is displaying his kindness here because even he's unsure about what Ziba was telling him. So he's like, listen, you're restored back your inheritance, Mephibosheth, and Ziba can keep the other half. But what's so telling is verse 30. And Mephibosheth said to the king, after David says that announcement that I just said, oh, let him take it all, meaning Ziba, Ziba can have it all. You want to know where Mephibosheth stands? There it is. He's like, I don't care about the land. I don't care about the inheritance. Ziba can have every bit of it. What matters most to me is this, that my Lord, the king, has come safely home. Mephibosheth understands everything he has is wrapped up in God's anointed, in King David. Now think about our situation. We sing, we sing a song called, um, my wealth is in the cross. There's nothing more I want. All my wealth is in the cross. This is essentially the announcement Mephibosheth is making. David, my inheritance means nothing to me. My inheritance is everything because you're back on your throne as king, safely home. Is that how we live our lives? Do we live our lives as if all of our wealth is in the cross? Right, like Mephibosheth's response here demonstrates what is, truly, what is truly valuable to him. You see, for us as New Testament believers, the glorious inheritance of the gospel is not possessions. Did you hear that, McKinney, Texas? Like, the glorious inheritance of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not material wealth. The glorious inheritance of the gospel is the king himself, Jesus Christ. That is our inheritance. That is our wealth. That is of what's most value in our lives. And Mephibosheth is a picture of going, listen, I don't care about all those other things. All I care about is that the king is restored, that the king is back on his throne. All my wealth is in the cross. There's nothing more I want. Really? Is that true of you? And then this third, in verse 31, this third interaction. Barzillia, or Barzillai, this is one of my favorite interactions in this. So Barzillai, and I'll, I'll just read it so you get the context. The Galidite had come down, this is verse 31, from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. And Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. All right, I'm not saying that's old. This is what the Bible said, okay? He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. So get this. This man provided for David and his men. 
He was loyal to David along the way in leaving Jerusalem. He's loyal to, to God's king. And David comes back as he's entering into Jerusalem. He goes, Barzillai, I, I want to reward you. I want you to go back into Jerusalem and enjoy everything I enjoy. Right? He's saying this to this 80-year-old man. I want you to enjoy everything I enjoy. And I love this guy's response. And I'll paraphrase it. You can look at it. He essentially says this. He goes, I'm 80 years old. He's like, the good food you would feed me, I can't even taste. He's like, the music that you would play for my ears to hear, guess what? I can't even hear it. He's like, what good would it do me to go into Jerusalem with you, right? What good? What? I don't want to go there. I'm completely satisfied right here where I am at the end of my life. I'm completely satisfied with you, King David, knowing that my whole life was lived in loyalty to you, in blessing, in honoring you. I know you want to give me that. I know you want to take me into Jerusalem with you and show your love toward me. But here it is. I'm satisfied. I'm seasoned in age. Take my son, Chimham. So Chimham, his son, goes into Jerusalem and reaps the benefits of his blessed and faithful and satisfied father. Hmm. A son who receives the award from his father's loyalty and faithfulness. If you don't see these gospel bells and these pictures going off, I don't know how else to direct you. I told you we're drawing a close to this this narrative in First and Second Samuel, right? And listen, I know that David's narrative continues in First Kings, but doesn't that feel like a good end? David's kindness in his mercy the one who cursed him, now being extended mercy, the one Mephibosheth who was carried to the table, now continuing to be restored by David back into his table, Barzillai sending his son, this faithful older man going, I'm just satisfied here. I'm satisfied where I am. I'm satisfied in the king. My son is going with you. Doesn't that seem, and they're, they're, they're marching back into Jerusalem, right? Doesn't this just feel like a fitting ending? There's some more chapters, aren't there? In verse 41 through 43, here's what happens. We happen. People happen, right? Judah and Israel begin to argue over who's going to walk in first with David into Jerusalem. (laughs) I'm like, come on, guys. Can't this just be a celebration? Can't we just, why don't we all go in together, right? Like diplomatic parenting. Like, why don't we just go all in together? But they're like, no, we're better. No, we have this. No, we're promises. No, we're going in. We're the greatest. Sounds like the disciples a little bit, right? But no, we're the greatest. We're going in with David first. And then in the middle of it, and this begins us into chapter 20. Now there happened to, verse one, now there happened to be there a worthless man. Now in any language, in any context, this is Hebrew, right? The term worthless man is never good. Okay, this guy, he is a worthless man. His name was Sheba. And it says that Sheba blew a trumpet and said, and I'll tell you what he said here in a second. So get this, they're fighting, they're arguing about who's gonna go into Jerusalem with David. And then Sheba steps in the middle of this whole argument and is like, right, that's a weak trumpet, but you get the point, okay? He blows his trumpet and everybody's like, hold on, what's going on? And this worthless man says, we have no portion in David. He's talking to Israel. He's talking to 
his group of people, okay? We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. And it felt like the kingdom of Israel was coming together in unity, didn't it? In 19, Shammai and Mephibosheth, Barzillai, and now Sheba. Drawing the nation back into disunity. Back into division. But David's in Jerusalem. He's back. Isn't it all supposed to go well? And what plays out in chapter 20, we don't have time to cover it in, in great detail. But as much of what we have covered before in First and Second Samuel, where Sheba is pursued by, well, first off, the, the failure of Amasa, who, is, who took over for Joab. He was not pursued by him. Joab steps in, as Joab always does, David's commander. And he goes after Sheba, and he meets this wise woman, the scriptures tell us, and she was wise. She told him of the wisdom of what's going to take place and how this is going to take place and what's going to bring back this unity from this place of division in many ways. And Joab, hastily, as Joab always does, executes his justice and his judgment. And you can read about that all the way through chapter 20. In verse 22, here's what it says. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. I'm not going to read this because we have kids in here. They took care of Sheba. And so he blew the trumpet and they dispersed. There's that trumpet again. And they blew the trumpet, this is Joab, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. That's the narrative? Look at what follows after that, and if you have your Bible, verses 23 through 26. Look at that, what is that? That's a list of names, for those of you that don't have your Bible in front of you. There's just this list of names. It's like you ever, I'm not a big movie guy, but you ever watch a movie, you get all the way through the narrative or you, you roll all the way through it and then, and then all of a sudden credits roll and you're like, what? Like what, what, what just happened? You ever feel like that? No? You get every movie, right? You, you understand every plot? No, I, I feel like that com- confused watcher where I'm like, that sure seemed to end majoring on Joab. <laughs> That sure seemed to end with a lot of unresolved tension. It sure seemed to end in less resolved conflict and more unresolved conflict. Like that's what we're left feeling. Intentional or unintentional by the author? Absolutely intentional. Eugene Peterson, who has helped me a lot study through First and Second Samuel, he says this, and I think this is really helpful in thinking about this idea of no proper conclusion, or the seeming incompleteness of this. He says, in reflecting on what we have just read, we realize that this is not the kind of narrative we are used to reading in a religious book. We're used to moral lessons and theological truths. That probably means we should just pay attention, right? <laughs> but this story, while it is both moral and theological, cannot be boxed into either of those categories. This is a story of God's ways with men and women, the way they are, not the way they are supposed to be. God, as the story is told, is not separate from the story in such a way as to be generalized into truths. Now, that's how, that's how many of you read your scriptures. 
you try to boil them down into, and maybe that's even how you listen to sermons or how you even approach narratives. You're trying to just, just Kyle, just give me the list. Give me the list, the four or five bullet points that I can just go and I can execute the list. And what God is trying to do is trying to draw us in to his story of redemption. He's trying to draw us into the tensions and these things and these places that we don't fully understand, that we can't fully grasp yet. He's trying to call us into these complexities. And if we try to boil them down in just a four or five theological points, we might miss it. Most importantly, we might miss God himself. And Peterson goes on. He says, the way God works patiently and behind the scenes, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, establishes divine sovereignty by using flawed, rebellious, out-of-the-way men and women to do it. It is the kind of story writing, storytelling that will surface a thousand years later in the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This narrative trains us in perceiving and responding to God as God is. That has been my prayer for 1 and 2 Samuel, is that this long narrative, this slow churning over a year would show us who God is and how he operates. And it continues to release subtleties and intricacies of presence that continue to shape and reshape our lives. That's what these narratives are meant to do. Not to confuse us, but to leave us going, there has to be more. And let me land this talk here. And whether we like it or not, in our lives individually, and I know we feel this corporately, we all feel this sense of something being unresolved or incomplete or unfinished. Can you agree with that? That in your heart and in your life, and honestly, those are some of the hardest places to live. Maybe for some of you, it's that anticipation of a wedding and you're engaged. Great moments, right? But hard. Or you're anticipating a child. Or that you might bear a child. Or maybe you just graduated high school and you know college is coming, but you're living in that in-between let me tell you, first and foremost, what I hope you hear from First and Second Samuel and from Hebrews, as we'll talk about it, that God uses us where we are to accomplish his plan. Not a future destination of you and not a future destination with you. He uses you and me right where we are. In our weakness, his power is perfected. In our failure, he will redeem it for his plan and his purpose. Hear me, David is forgiven by the Lord. He is reestablished as the king of Israel, but there are still ramifications of his sin playing out even in chapter 20 as we end this 2 Samuel narrative. There's still this incompleteness and this unresolved of what's going to take place in the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And let me tell you, a large part of that is the time in which they fall. Right? They just passed through the time of judges. Now they're in the time of the kings, these kings who were supposed, these godly kings who were supposed to represent God to the people. But that's still a what? Imperfect, incomplete picture. Now fast forward to where are we today? David was in the time of the kings. We are in the time of the church, the church age. Listen, we can put on our New Testament lenses. Our Bibles, praise God, have a New Testament, right? That New Testament that begins with the story of who? Jesus, okay, good. I thought, man, we got to back way up. We got to back way up. 
okay? The New Testament, we gotta back way up, okay? It begins with the story of the Messiah, the one that they were pointing to, the one they were anticipating, the shadow of the one that they were casting, going, no, that's the substance. The shadow is no more. The substance is now here in Christ Jesus. That's the age that we live in with these lenses that see the Messiah has come. He's lived perfectly. He died innocently, the death I deserve, and he rose victoriously. Then, here's what Jesus says, after his resurrection, he goes, I'm giving you what? The Holy Spirit. That's the time, that's the age, that's the when are we, that's where we are. We're in the age of the Holy Spirit shaping and moving our lives. But yet, how many of you still know, we still feel, even though that's already accomplished, we still feel and know in our individual lives and lives around us that there's still something left incomplete. The Savior has come, he has redeemed us, he has saved us, hear me. That work has been applied to us, the Holy Spirit is alive in us but yet we still wrestle with sin. We still feel the ramifications of sin, the incomplete nature and unresolved to the story. It's not quite finished. That in the church age, we are further along in the story of redemption, that God has provided something better for us as Hebrews 12 tells us, and that something better is Jesus. This is Hebrews 12, verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. How many of you have heard that before? What in the world does that mean? Okay, thank you for the three hands. For everybody else, what does that mean? That means that Jesus was there at the beginning. He is the beginning of our salvation, and he is the perfecter. Another word for perfecter, finisher. So here is the hope of what the author of Hebrews tells you when we feel that unresolved, when we feel that tension toward, wait, things are still broken. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes in your life upon Jesus the founder, the one who started the work, and the perfecter, the one who will finish the work perfectly. But hear me, his work's not complete. The work is not finished. Christ has not returned again. Our hearts, they long for that day, for our faith to be fully realized. And so hear me, we live in this tension of what's called the already, not yet. The finished work of the cross has been applied, but not yet fully consummated, where Jesus comes back and finishes it once and for all. So we live in a tension. Can we just acknowledge that we live in a tension? But how do we live in that tension? How do we live with that weight of something being unresolved or incomplete? Are the scriptures silent? Well, the first thing I want to say is this. How we live in that tension. How we live even as we approach or look at something like 2 Samuel and go, that's the the end? That's credits roll there? Maybe some of you thinking that like in your life, like that's, that's where I am. How do you live in those spaces? The first thing is this, that we as Christians, we stand on the promises of God. Promises like Hebrews chapter three that says, you, if you are in Christ, you are holy. I don't think you you got that. The promise that says that if you are in Christ, you are holy. You're whole. You're righteous. You're a son, you're a daughter, you've been adopted in. Do you stand on that promise? You see, you have to have that foundation that to know that in Christ you have everything you need. That's the gospel. There's nothing lacking in you. You are holy, Hebrews 3 says. 
How beautiful is that? But then simultaneously, our New Testament says this in 1 Peter 1. Be holy as I am holy. So we hold as believers living in the tension, living in this space of unresolvedness, incompleteness, if you will, the already but not yet. We live as people who God has declared holy in and through Jesus Christ, but we also live as people walking out our holiness, walking out our identity. The problem is when you have one or the other, not both and. Some of you go, yeah, I'm holy. That means I can live however I want, do whatever I want. Here's what Paul says to that. You don't get grace. You don't get how you have been redeemed and saved. You don't get Jesus. Some of you, however, and maybe this is the majority of you, you are over here going, be holy, be holy, be holy. Then God will love me. Then God will, do, then God will save me. Be holy, be holy, be holy. And no, God goes, no, it's both together. It's the foundational promise that you are holy because and in and through Christ alone. And now here's how I want you to walk. Here's your motivation. Be holy. Live that out. That's how we live in this tension. And so I want us to take communion this morning with the gospel of Jesus Christ front and center on our minds. That the finished work of the cross is our foundation. Yeah, you guys can go. That it is the motivation by which we live in these incomplete days, if you will. In the moments of tension in our own lives. Where maybe some of you are feeling like Paul, you're like, I, I find myself doing the very thing I don't want to do and not doing the thing I want to do. Tension. But Paul never once goes, I don't know who I am. He knew who he was in Christ and he knew his call because of that foundation and that identity and what he was called to. Be holy. The way in which we can cling to the promises are only in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Only in what he has done in us and for us. And the moment we forget that the, is the moment we begin to work in our own strength. We begin to work in our own power, lean on our own understanding. And so this morning, before we take communion, I know we say a fitting way to end communion is with worship, but I think it's also a fitting way to go into communion is worship. And so I want us to take this time and this space to enter worship, enter communion in worship, in singing. And so would you stand with me? Not taking the elements yet, we're gonna get to those. And use this song as a way to allow the Holy Spirit to prepare your heart to receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Test leaders.
that need is met one way through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. All of our other needs stand upon that foundation that our greatest and deepest need was met in Jesus Christ and his life being laid down for mine and being picked back up victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. So the foundation to all that we are, these elements represent that. And on the night Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he told his disciples, as he would tell us this morning, that this bread broken represents his body broken for you. He was broken so that we might be made whole. Think about that. So you might be made whole so that I might be made whole. And so let's partake remembering his body. In the same manner, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood shed for you. He said, this is the new covenant. When Hebrew says there's a better way, and that better way is Jesus, he's not saying, hey, everything David did was wrong. No, he's saying everything David did that the law pointed to, Jesus fulfilled perfectly. That this is the new covenant, how we are saved, Jesus says, is solely through my blood shed for you. And so this is our hope. This is our confidence. Lord, I need you every day. I need you. This is how he meets that need. Let's take it together. church the only fitting response before and after communion is what worship let's worship our lord right now in prayer father thank you for jesus thank you that he has come that he has forgiven us that he has called us by a new name lord that he bestowed upon us graces upon graces lord that he has um, set our feet on solid ground that he is our anchor he is the steadfast um, hope of our soul and of this church and so lord i pray that we would live in light of this great salvation that we would live in a broken world with the great confidence we have in jesus christ that we are his that we are sons and daughters called by a new name Oh, Lord, and as we long for a new creation, Lord, where you're setting up, God, all the brokenness is gone and and all the pain and sin and struggle is no more. All the tension is gone until that day, Lord, we hope with great anticipation. And Lord, I pray that we don't just hope, but we live in light of the security we have in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray as we go from here, may that change the way that we interact with those around us. May that change the way that we look at ourselves. May that change the way we view this church. And so, Lord, I pray only you can do this. Holy Spirit, only you can take these words and shape our hearts. So do that for your glory this week. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.